Welcome everyone. We're working, as you can see, with a different mic, so if there's trouble hearing, let me know. Figuring out how to make it work for everyone. So we're moving on to the second hindrance of aversion. And, uh, you know, as we've been learning over and over again in different ways, but we're learning to map it out, bringing awareness to the mind, we're mapping out how it is that the mind becomes obscured or covered over in ways, influenced in ways that's directly related to the experience of stress. So it's like a good scientist, you know, we're just observing our life and in particular observing the mind or the heart and the one barometer, the one sort of measuring stick that we have because it's the most relevant thing is the experience of stress or suffering. So we're going through life, we're observing the heart and we're just noticing when there's more suffering or stress, when there's less suffering and stress in a very immediate way. So we're not, it's not theoretical. It's just in the moment, is the heart or mind bound up or unbound and released? And then we're just mapping it out. So when we notice the mind is bound up, it's like we're taking a a little sample or snapshot and we're understanding, oh, this is related to this experience of being bound up. This activity of mind that I'm noticing, this activity of the heart, It's related to the experience of being bound up. And this activity of the mind, this way of being, way of relating, it seems to be correlated with the experience of non-stress or release. And the more we're doing that basic research of the mind, the more this map emerges. You know, the map of the, you could say, for example, In Buddhist terms, the map of the five hindrances and the map of the seven factors of awakening that we studied a while, I think it was last year, right? Last winter, maybe, we did the seven factors of awakening for those who were in the class then. But basically mapping out the way the mind is when there's the experience of release or freedom from being bound up and mapping out the different ways that relate to the mind being bound up, being caught up, being in a reactive, heavy, contracted state. Like the Buddha says, as if being in debt, or as if being ill, or imprisoned, or enslaved, or endangered. These are the five ways the Buddha described being caught in the hindrances of craving, and aversion, and dullness, and restlessness, and doubt being in debt, being ill, being imprisoned, enslaved, and in danger. And then when the mind goes beyond or abandons that particular activity that's related to being bound up, caught up, then there's that direct experience of release. And we need to see this, you know, thousands of times to really get the map clear. It's not enough to notice doubt once or aversion once but many 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 times seeing aversion and in particular as I've mentioned earlier 
if there's a continuity of mindfulness where we're seeing aversion and the experience of being bound, stressed out by the aversive state and tracking it until there isn't any aversion in the mind and experiencing the mind free of that contraction that we had a moment ago or minutes ago when the mind was bound up, that is a very special kind of learning. One, it's seeing that the mind is a dynamic thing. Because often when we're caught in a particular mind state, emotional pattern, there's a sense, there's a diluted sense that this is who I am. As if it's always been this way. Somehow, magically, we forget that earlier today I was very buoyant and happy. You know, when we're upset, when we're depressed, when we're sad, when we're feeling lonely, when we're envious, when we're caught in craving or caught in hatred or aversion, we forget that this is a newly arisen state. It hasn't always been this way. Because part of the delusion of being in, a, let's say, an aversive state is it's very hard to remember non-aversive states. And it's very easy to remember other aversive states. So when I'm really irritated or impatient or angry, what I tend to remember are all the times I've been angry or impatient or irritated. I don't remember the times when I felt a lot of love, a lot of natural contentedness, a lot of whatever. I don't remember that when I'm feeling angry. So this is why it's so important to map out the mind. It's just like any field of study. You know, what we initially bring to it is so primitive. Like, if we had no background and no formal careful study of nature imagine the conclusions we draw I mean just like human beings imagine the conclusions they drew about nature in the past or about the solar system you know or about anything they, now we kind of laugh at it like oh they thought it, you know they thought the sun went around the earth or that there were birds you know and they're tied to the sun and they flew up and they dragged the sun up along with them or all the different stories that human beings have told themselves about how things work and so this you know learning how things work requires this very careful systematic and in particular this continuous awareness so we're really learning cause and effect and that's what I mentioned last week and we can just I think it's important to review it and this is that worksheet that Hopefully you've been looking at from Andy Olensky's journal, Insight Journal, that he edits. Now it's just an online journal, no longer printed. But this is his chart, Understanding the Hindrances, where where Andy Olensky uh, is just outlining these particular discourses of the Buddha, where he talks about what feeds the states that, that hinder the mind and what starves these qualities that hinder the mind, that hinder the clarity and balance and relaxation of the mind. What hinders it? Well, the thought of beauty, right? When we're involved in sensual craving and the mind brings careless attention to what it likes, to what it's attracted to, that is feeding craving. But if it brings a careful attention to the qualities that aren't attractive, that are also true, 
right? So we're not saying that there aren't attractive qualities, but we're exclusively paying attention to the attractive qualities and therefore feeding craving because the mind is thinking it's only good. There's nothing but good here. And of course, if we don't see any downside, we're going to trip out on that experience. It's going to support the sense of a somebody who's going to be really happy if they get this, if there's no downside. But if we practice not just paying attention to what's pleasant or attractive, but specifically noticing what's neutral or unattractive about that experience, it throws water on the experience of sensual craving. So for aversion, if we bring careless attention to what we dislike, we're feeding anger, we're feeding hatred, we're feeding envy, we're feeding irritation and impatience. When we bring careless attention to what we don't like. If we're sitting in traffic and we're bringing careless attention to what we, what we don't like, the aversion builds. If we bring a careful attention to what we do like, to qualities of loving kindness or the impersonal nature, aversion falls away. Aversion depends on taking it personally and it depends on looking at, seeing what we hate, what we don't like, what's painful. People make this mistake in meditation practice thinking we need to pay attention to the pain. But if all we're doing when we're paying attention to the pain is not liking it, that's not helping because we're reinforcing, we're feeding aversion. Even though we may be telling ourselves we're practicing correctly, the actual experience, if the actual experience is that we're feeding aversion, then we're not practicing correctly. To be practicing correctly always involves two things. This is a true with daily life and the formal meditation. When we're practicing correctly, two things are happening. The mind is ex- moving in the direction of this inner joy, the joy of a mind in balance, a mind that's unified in the present moment is a happy mind. There's an inner joy or happiness or bliss. So if we're moving in that direction, then we're practicing correctly. And if we're seeing things about the way that it is that we haven't seen before, then we're moving in the right direction. And really, these are the only ways you can, if you want to judge your practice, judge it according to these two. Are you seeing things you haven't seen before about the nature of things and nature of your mind in particular? And are you moving in the direction of this inner balance, this inner joy, this inner stability, this inner peace? And if not, don't assume you're practicing correctly. Like, why would we assume we're doing the right thing when we're not seeing what we haven't seen before and we're not moving in the direction of this inner peace or inner ease? We should reflect on what we're doing, how we're practicing, and we should try something else. Because the what we're doing isn't leading to insight and isn't leading to calm and inner happiness then why are we doing it? So that's the time to go back to the teachings, back to the teacher, back to your own experience, reflecting on what's worked in the past, 
what has led to insight and then what were the supporting causes and conditions that led to that experience of seeing what you hadn't seen before or led to deeper states of tranquility or inner happiness that you hadn't experienced before and then see if you can support those same or bring about those same supporting conditions that worked in the past so that we're really understanding the map always about cause and effect and then just to sort of highlight where we're going with dullness and restlessness so if we bring a careless attention to regret to drowsiness to the heaviness of the mind the dullness of the mind the weakness of the body if we bring a careless attention to those qualities we're going to get more sleepy more dull you know how it is if the mind is like sludge and we indulge in that feeling of feeling like sludge we feel more like sludge you know like and I'm sure you've had this experience of maybe sleeping a little long longer than you would otherwise and you know it's like you get there's this sort of choice that can be made over and over again every time you come to enough it's like do I gravitate back toward the sludge the sort of semi-conscious or do I sort of resolve to sort of focus the mind to get out of bed to you know actually look at the clock and let that reality sink in oh my god it's and we really see how the more we let the mind go in this direction the more it will go in this direction so gravitating toward what is dull what is heavy what is in the direction of dullness sort of seeing the superficial pleasantness of that and in a sense being seduced by it we can cause feed that state of dullness and then of course the more we feed it the harder it is to in a sense lift the mind out of the sludge out of the heaviness right isn't it it's so compelling when things are heavy but the thing is you know we've had, all of us have had enough experiences where maybe some outside factor like a phone call from a particular person that we really like comes in yeah. and then all of a sudden we hear the person's voice and now you know we have energy to do something or something scary happens you know there's like a sound we hear and immediately the sludge leaves so what makes sludge so thick isn't the sludge itself it's the way the mind is relating to the sludge it's taking it personally it's indulging in it when we indulge in the heaviness the dullness it really has a sense of weight or substance that it doesn't deserve because it itself isn't as heavy sludgy as, as it appears but it's the uh, indulging and identification that gives it and then starving the hindrance of dullness is by putting forth effort exertion zeal you know this is this paradox it's it's energizing to make effort generally we think we need to have energy to make effort but actually the fact is energy comes 
from making effort. Brightness comes from making effort. The way we wake up is we get out of bed, right? We're not really going to wake up in bed and get like clear and bright and ready for the day. The way we get ready for the day is we get up and we move, you know, and we do things. And then all of a sudden we start feeling ready for the day. But you know how it is. It's like, oh, I don't feel ready for the day. I'm going to stay in bed. Well, we're never going to feel ready for the day. (laughs) And some of our weekends or whenever you don't have to get up, you've learned this really unpleasant lesson where we can just stay in that dull state or like if you have a week off and you don't have anything planned you can it can actually be a week of hell where nothing happens and you don't feel like doing anything you know and we're just desperate for something the only times we feel alive is when there's an exciting thing on TV and then as soon as that the sort of tangential high from watching the thing on TV goes away, then we're, you know, just like nothing to inflate the mind. Because we're waiting for the mind to be inflated. We're waiting for some energy to come in, but it never comes in. And then I'll just mention restlessness as we'll be covering these two in the next two weeks. So, non-tranquility, paying attention to non-tranquility is the cause for restlessness. And you know, you know this experience like I've got to pay attention I've got to figure out what's agitating the mind in order to be calm but that's feeding the restlessness it's exactly the idea that all these things need to be resolved that life is not safe unless everything is in order everything is resolved it's this exact view that is the cause for restlessness thinking that things can't be the way that they are. They've got, I've got to do this. I've got to figure this out. Does this person like me? Am I okay? Did I do that okay? Right? You know, how long can we stay up at night wondering, did I handle that correctly? So, that's not tranquility. So, instead, we could bring a careful attention to tranquility, like taking a big, vast view of things. You know, if, you, if you're in a city and you focus on a particular activity, you know, it's agitating. But you can be in a city with a lot of activity, but you can gaze, take a look, or feel, or sense the city, but in a vast way, you know, where the activity is kind of peaceful. It's like a dance, it's just a the buzz like even at night if you're listening to the crickets or the cicadas is that how you say it Uh, you know there's two different views if you really focus on all of that activity of all of those insects it's agitating for the mind but if you relax back so focusing on the tranquil the calm aspect of the night then it's not a problem that there's activity that the wind is moving, that the sound of the crickets or the uh, cicadas. You know, it's, it can be really calming. So it really matters, like, if we're looking at the non-tranquil or the tranquil, tranquil aspects of what's present in the moment. It affects the mind. We either feed the experience of restlessness 
or we starve it. In that article that I sent, I think the very first week, um, this uh, well-known Western Buddhist monk who studied in uh, Sri Lanka for many decades and translated Nyanaponikatera, uh, the five mental hindrances and their conquests. So you might take a look at that. It has mostly it's just his collection of discourses, the Buddhist discourses on the teachings on the hindrances. So these are just some from the teachings on ill will or hatred. There are, and, it, and he's really, you'll see how the Buddha is always talking about ca- cause and effect. There are objects causing aversion, frequently giving unwise attention to them. This is the nourishment for the arising of ill will that has not yet arisen and for the increase and in strengthening of ill will that has already arisen. And I mentioned what this is already. It's paying attention to what we don't like. The denourishing of ill will. There is the liberation of the heart by loving kindness, frequently giving wise attention to it. This is the denourishing or the starving of the arising of ill will that has not yet arisen and the increase and strengthening of ill will that has already arisen. And then there's some uh, commentary. Oh, no, this is another discourse of the Buddha. Cultivate the meditation on loving kindness. For by cultivating the meditation on loving kindness, ill will disappears. Cultivate the meditation on compassion, on sympathetic joy, on equanimity. For by cultivating the meditation on these three qualities of compassion, sympathetic joy, or appreciative joy, and equanimity, anger disappears. And then these are some uh, ancient commentaries to the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So this ancient Buddhist scholar said that uh, there are six things that are helpful in conquering ill will. Learning how to meditate on loving kindness, we talked about already. Devoting oneself to the meditation on loving kindness. Considering that one is the owner and heir of one's actions. So those of you who have been coming to the Sunday talks heard me last few days ago, I guess last night, talk about how if we, the Buddha teaches, if we pay attention to the consequences, so when we're involved in ill will, and we just, in a sense, step back and we look, well, what's that being set in motion here? Like, if I'm dwelling on hatred, dwelling in impatience or ill will, now, later, over and over again, what kind of mind or heart is being set in motion? And is that the mind or heart I want to inhabit? Is that really what should be set in motion? And the answer is so clearly no. It goes on, have you not come to your present state by your own actions and will also go hence according to your own actions? Anger towards another is just as if someone wishing to hit another person takes hold of glowing coals or a heated iron rod or excrement. And in the same way, if the other person is angry with you, what can he or she do to you? Can he or she destroy your virtue and your good works, your good qualities? He or she, too, has come to their present state through their own actions and will go hence according to their own actions. 
Like an unaccepted gift or like a handful of dirt thrown against the wind, one's anger will fall back on one's own head. So this is, I mean, basically the teaching that just because somebody is angry at you, hateful toward you, it's like we don't need to respond. They're going to experience the suffering of their own hatred just as we will if we take it up. And then the last two, number five is noble friendship, suitable conversation. These are the six things that are helpful. Learning how to meditate on loving kindness, actually meditating on loving kindness, understanding that we're the heir of our actions, and then frequently reflecting on that in this way that I just mentioned. Noble friendship, suitable conversation. And then one last teaching from the Buddhist tradition on overcoming ill will. Rapture is said, some of you know when we've studied the five jhanic factors, maybe we did that this fall when we talked about concentration. So I, I think I mentioned there that one of the reasons to develop that one's understanding of the experience of rapture is you'll see that when the mind is experiencing that joyful interest, there isn't aversion in the mind. It pushes aversion out of the mind like a strong, clean, new wooden peg can push out an old rotten peg. That's one of the similes from the Buddha. Faith in the spiritual faculties that we studied in the fall, just being inspired by what's possible for this mind, for this life, pushes aversion out. It's when we're not feeling inspired, when we're feeling hopeless, it's easy to be aversive. And the last is the factors of of awakening, these seven factors, and in particular, rapture, again, and equanimity. You can take a look at these. You all have the link to this. And I also sent out a link to uh, Sarah Dowling's article on hatred. I couldn't remember if I had sent that out earlier, but I wanted to make sure you had it if you didn't have it. She just has a nice way of summing up all of the teachings on ill will. So I encourage you to read that article if you want more information, the Buddhist teachings on ill will. I just sent the link to the journal, so you have to go find the pages in that PDF, in pages 9 through 15. You can take a look at that. So, of course, we could spend a lot of time uh, talking about aversion, and we really only have one night if we're going to get through the five hindrances to talk about aversion. But it's important to just have a sense of the breadth of the experience of ill will. Everything from guilt is a kind of ill will toward ourself, kind of self-hatred, boredom, all the mild experiences of irritation, all the different qualities of fear, existential angst, terror, all the different experiences of anger and revenge and resentment and resistance and patience. So it's a quite diverse or broad you know, set of experiences that we all have. But any desire to punish, to hurt, destroy. And the thing about aversion that's so seductive is it's intense. When we want to get rid of something, hurt somebody, get even, resist, there's a certain intensity in aversion 
that's seductive. We feel quite alive. The Buddha has this phrase when talking about aversion, he called it murderously sweet. It's the intensity that makes it sweet. We feel, the ego feels very much alive, even though it hurts, like the earlier commentary, you know, it's like picking up excrement or picking up a red-hot coal or red-hot iron rod. So we immediately get hurt, but it's an intense experience. We feel alive in that pain and the anger. And that, that sort of uh, juice, that ego juice, because of the intensity, is confusing for the mind. Part of that intensity revolves around the sense of separation. You know, whenever there's a strong experience of aversion, there's a dualistic notion of a somebody who wants something else, wants to get rid of, somebody who feels betrayed. So we can just notice when we're angry, notice how personal, how apart we feel in that experience, isolated we feel. And our attempts, you know, when we act out our aversion in all the ways, so let's just sum them up as two ways. We act out our aversion by closing down. And believe me, I think this is, can be just as destructive as punching somebody. Closing down, shutting down, can be just as violent toward herself and another as yelling at somebody or hitting somebody or hurting ourselves in a more obvious way. So regardless of how we react to the aversion, we want to get a sense of that sense of uh, separation. And uh, yeah, just how isolating it is, how strong the sense of self is, how narrow and tight the mind is. It's like... Uh, when we understand it that way, that kind of closing the heart off from life, basically the heart is saying no to life, which is the only thing we have. This moment is the only thing. I mean, whatever existence is, it's this moment, right? So aversion is a way of closing the heart off. That's that dualistic thing. That's why any sense of separation from this the wholeness of this is always a kind of death or suffering or dukkha because we're we're sort of compelled or convinced by a thought that this is not okay this needs to be destroyed and the seductiveness of that thought causes the mind to do something it's almost magical what it does is it separates itself from the only thing that is by this fixation on a thought, this is not okay, some version of that thought, the heart, in a sense, disconnects. And then, of course, it hurts. That disconnection hurts. That sense of separation hurts, which gets misinterpreted as convincing the mind that, in fact, there is something that needs to be destroyed, something that needs to be fixed or controlled or gotten rid of or given up about. So the mistaken reaction reinforces the mistaken perception. There's that feedback loop. Of course, it's the same, I mean, similar sort of thing with craving. 
in one of Gil Bronstall's articles, he quotes a traditional folk saying that goes this way, an enemy can hurt you physically, but if the enemy wants to hurt your heart, you have to help by getting angry. So we really want to get this violence of anger, this direct violence, like it's really about picking up something that's burning. Because that it's the seeing of that that allows the heart to let go. Aversion, because it's so seductive, is not going to be let go of because we want to be a good person. It's let go of because we see that it's destructive. It never makes sense. So just to make it easy, you know, as you work with it, remember that there are two ways to work with aversion. Mindfulness, seeing the aversion as just a state of mind, a thought, an emotion that's arising and being known. So directly, immediately cutting the identification with it. The other primary means to overcoming aversive states is to more and more cultivate loving kindness. When we, when we systematically cult, cultivate friendliness and loving kindness in our lives, two things happen. In those moments when we're cultivating it, aversion is removed from the mind, so we experience non-aversion. And that really helps us understand aversion, because aversion really stands out when the mind is friendly. I've been, most of you know, I accidentally sent out this email to all of you today about my mother dying last night. Um, I'm happy that you know that, but I didn't mean to send it out to everybody. I was meaning to send it to another group, but I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> um, so you know that my, most of you know, if you read your email, that my mother died last night. And, I, and we've been standing vigil the last almost two weeks, or I guess about two weeks now, actually a little longer, just in this very slow decline and just all the family around her bed, just spending hours just sitting in her bedroom. And uh, I just noticed a lot, just because the family's together and we have a pretty harmonious family, and so just lots of love and uh, just lots of tenderness and compassion for my mother and the whole scene. And then just it's just really standing out, like experiences with my sisters and brothers and my wife, and my buttons getting pushed and you know aversion arising and just all the little ways it really stood out because in that context of the heart being so open and sensitive and so much love and just inclusivity you know it's the intimacy itself that shows up our aversive natures I mean those of you who have been in intimate relationships know this if there's a strong intimacy with another person we really notice the aversion and the irritation and all of the different ways we throw the world and other people out of our hearts. It just stands out when the moment before we were feeling so whole, holy together, so inclusive of each other, and then in the next moment, you know, not. So this is one of the advantages of metta. The other is then it is a way of redirecting the mind when it is caught up in aversion. So not only will metta 
help us to see aversion more and more clearly in our lives. But then it's a very effective tool. Again, using that simile from the Buddha where we use metta practice by focusing on the metta. It's not like we're focusing on the aversion. I want to get rid of the aversion so I'm going to bring in metta. It's a redirection. We're giving our heart to friendliness, to loving kindness. And just lo and behold, aversion is dropped. So yes, but we're not trying to get rid of the aversion. We're redirecting the attention to loving kindness. It is the effective way to remove the state of aversion when we're caught in it. Don't try to figure the aversion out. Mindfulness, if it's going to work, is going to work immediately, you know, in the first seconds of opening to aversion. If it's not working, you know, then redirect your attention. You can always try again in the next moment if it arises to see it with mindfulness. But if mindfulness isn't strong enough to cut through the attachment, identification with the aversion and the thoughts and images that go with it, then redirect your attention somewhere else. Take up a different strategy. Don't think about the aversion. That's that strategy where the Buddha said you're feeding the aversion. Paying attention to the painful, unpleasant aspects of the aversion will feed it. It's only if wisdom is strong enough not to take the unpleasant aspects personally will you cut through it. So if, you're, if it feels personal, basically we're not doing very good. We're not helping ourselves or anybody by paying attention. Because we're paying attention in terms of the story of the aversion. We're in the bubble. There's no way out of the bubble when we're in the bubble. bubble. We have to get out of the bubble, either by immediately seeing it's just a bubble, or by creating another bubble that's much more wholesome, which is... I care about me, I care about you, I care about this. One way or another, we have to have a friendly bubble. And then, from that point of view, of wisdom or loving kindness, then we can look back at this bubble with some perspective and some insight. And this is some of the things you can share in your small group tonight. Uh, We're going to break into groups of three in just a moment. And one of the things you might want to bring up is just where in your life you're experiencing. And you feel free to go to any of the other hindrances, but in particular tonight, if you have some reflections on aversion, what particular conditions seem to trigger the aversive states? And then how have you learned that you're feeding the aversive state when it's there? What are you doing that's triggering it, that's supporting the getting lost in it? And then what are you doing that's maintaining the state of aversion? What do you pay attention to? What thoughts does your mind attend to? Images does your mind attend to that feed the fire of aversion? And then in those times when you've been able to drop the aversion, what did you pay attention to that supported the abandoning of the aversion? And in those days or those times when you're not that averse, what is the mind doing that's preventing the aversion from arising or maintaining states of loving kindness, friendliness? So it'd be great. I mean, this is the kind of conversations we should be having. Imagine if all the time we spent talking about the weather or movies or this and that, we just shared about, you know, how I'm getting caught in aversion and how I'm being freed of aversion. You know, we've become pretty sophisticated about 
freedom over the years if this is what we talked about. So we have this opportunity tonight to do that. So I think tonight, let's try counting off by 17. You want to start? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Jonathan? Three. Four, five, six. Tom is seven. Eight, nine, ten, eleven. Four, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Four, three, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. So the three of you, including Doug, you'll meet right by Doug here. And then Jimmy, Scott, and Bill in this corner. And then Barbara, why don't you go to group one? Okay? So group one in my office, you can get the key. Um, group two, right here. Group three by Alexis. Group four over by Jonathan. Group five in that corner. Group six in the lobby. Group seven in the lobby. Group eight, nine, ten, and eleven in the community room. Group twelve on the white couch. Group thirteen on the table in the workshop just below the community room. Group 14 uh, in the coat area. Are we running out of space? 15. Fifteen in the entryway. 16 uh, right over here by Jana. And 17 we need. How about 17 right here? And then, of course, once you group up, feel free to find another spot. Any group within earshot, you can all take time. Otherwise, choose a Bell, I mean, uh, timekeeper for the groups. And feel free for the first 30 seconds to just have silence so you can reflect on what you're going to think or uh, speak about. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.